Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Martin Melosi talks about fresh kills, the infamous Staten Island landfill, which, in the roughly 50 years during which it operated, grew to be as large as a city, serving as the dump for New York's ever-growing mountains of waste. The site is now being reframed and rehabilitated as New York City's largest park. But as Melosi says here, its story is really about the dramatic increase of garbage in the post-war United States and of urban consumption globally. While Staten Islanders bitterly complained that Fresh Kills was just another symbol of New York City's exploitation and neglect of the so-called forgotten borough, few of its residents, and few New Yorkers, protested when the government decided to shut down the formerly well-located and relatively unpopulated junkyard to create other Fresh Kills in other Staten Islands around the country. Indeed, mass dumping has grown and continued unabated in the age of recycling and sustainability, especially in cities like New York the most concentrated areas for human economic activity. Melosi, an internationally renowned scholar in the field, is just about to publish a mammoth study of fresh kills and previews that work for us here. For more podcasts like this and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. I first began thinking about writing a book on fresh kills a little more than 10 years ago. The idea began as a narrative history of the landfill, which is one of the largest human-engineered formations in the world. This monumental structure sits on 2,200 acres along the Fresh Kills Estuary in the northwestern part of Staten Island on what had been extensive salt marsh. As an op-ed in the local newspaper noted in 1991, Staten Islanders live side-by-side with landfill that's larger than some cities. My own awareness of the site dates to the late 1970s. At that time, I was doing research in New York City for a book project on the history of refuse management. On that trip, I did not visit Staten Island. But in the book that resulted, Garbage in the Cities, I did briefly discuss fresh kills, mostly as a gee whiz example of a massive dumping ground for Gotham's never-ending stream of solid waste. By the 1980s, landfills were becoming too expensive and facing criticism as environmental failures. But Fresh Kills was going strong and remained a marvel of large-scale engineering and disposal for many more years. As garbage in the cities made the academic and public rounds, I got to know many engineers, city officials, lawyers, and business leaders associated with the waste management field. And I also met Merle Latterman Eucalese, an imaginative artist who celebrated the efforts of New York sanitation workers and provided trenchant commentary on the implications of consumption and waste in our society. For my growing interest in the solid waste business, some colleagues labeled me a garbage historian, a moniker I was not very comfortable with, but I grew to accept and enjoy the title. Through my scholarship, I came to realize the daunting challenge of confronting the waste issue as a vital health and environmental imperative. On a trip to Newark in 1983, a colleague took me to the Meadowlands, where I got my first glimpse of a vast landfill site, not as big as Fresh Kills, but nevertheless gigantic. In 1988, I chaired a small session at Hunter College in New York City, which pitted an incinerator executive against the famous environmentalist Barry Commoner. The session centered on reintroducing incineration in the Big Apple, and I was truly stunned at the verbal fireworks that ensued, especially from the unwavering commoner. 
I was able to observe, on first hand, the intensity and divisiveness that differences over waste disposal could provoke. For the next 10 years, I devoted most of my time to topics other than waste management, but returned to it as part of my research for The Sanitary City, published in 2001. The book dealt with solid waste, water, and wastewater services. What brought me back to Fresh Kills was a phone call from an archaeologist garbologist named Bill Rathje. Bill was engaged in work related to the September 11th disaster, especially the decision to transfer debris and human remains from the wreckage of the Twin Towers to Staten Island, in all about 1.5 million tons. He wanted to pick my brain about approaching the research, especially since I had recently conducted a major project for the National Park Service on the historical significance of the Fresno, California landfill. An amazing story for another day. Probably two or three years later, I recalled my conversation with Bill Rathje around the time that I was trying to decide on a future book project. The idea about developing a book on fresh kills grew beyond a story of the building and closing of the site and its gee whiz image. I envisioned work along two parallel lines. First was my fascination with the massive landfill itself, and its role in New York's refuse management history, and its place in the changing physical landscape of Staten Island. Second was the desire to explore fresh kills broadly in terms of the causes and impacts, not only as a site, but as a symbol. This meant, among other things, trying to understand how rampant consumption of goods and services, especially since World War II, created waste disposal problems in the United States like never before. A gem of an essay, The Town Dump, written by novelist and environmentalist Wallace Stegner, captured some of the imagery of landfills as social structures. Stegner provided a vivid portrayal of the importance of the town dump in White Mud, Saskatchewan. Quote, the place fascinated us, as it should have, for this was the kitchen midden of all the civilization we knew. It gave us the most tantalizing glimpses into our lives as well as into those of the neighbors. It gave us an aesthetic distance from which to know ourselves. My friend and colleague from Beijing, philosophy professor Song Tian, told me that a landfill, quote, is a space that lost its dignity. Quite a contrast to Stegner, but such different views made the study of fresh kills very enticing. I also gained unusually valuable insights from historical geography and landscape studies. There is no denying that place is very important. New York City is an island city that was historically land poor, but economically and demographically dynamic, where outlets for waste from mass consumption faced severe limits, and the mounting piles of refuse created the city's garbage problem. In the case of Fresh Kills Landfill, it is not simply that the facility was built, but where it was built. Gulping up the Staten Island salt marsh to construct the landfill was in itself an important aspect of rampant consumption and a change agent for the borough and greater New York City as well. Timing of construction is equally important. I initially envisioned a timeline for the book extending from the opening of the landfill in 1948 through its closure in 2001 and including its place in the story of September 11th. 
Soon, I began to see that I needed to build a backstory about significant steps leading to Fresh Kills Landfill prior to 1948, emphasizing how disposal was treated before then, but also what Staten Island and its marshes were like going back to the late 19th century before the borough was part of New York City's consolidation. I also needed to extend my narrative forward beyond September 11th to include the drive to convert the landfill space into parkland, which gained momentum by late 2001. What I sought, therefore, was a way to incorporate time and space into my story that ventured from landscape to wastescape to echoscape. The resulting book, Fresh Kills, centers on the mundane yet profound problem of solid waste disposal in the modern metropolis. Waste from mass consumption was a serious dilemma for cities in the 20th century and into the 21st. This is true whether we are talking about fossil fuel emissions and climate change or accumulating tons of refuse from discarded goods and not knowing what to do with them. Societies in both the developed and developing worlds have faced the challenge of pursuing economic growth and at the same time coping with the unwanted residue of material accumulation. The rise of Greater New York City and its decision to build Fresh Kills Landfill offer a supreme example of the dilemma of consuming in recent years. Fresh Kills was a consequence of mass consumption and the embodiment of massive waste itself. The teeming boroughs making up the city first emptied their vast amounts of accumulated waste into nearby watercourses, including the Atlantic Ocean, and also on land throughout the city. The municipal government also began experimenting with incinerators in 1885 and reduction plants in 1895. Eventually, the city delivered its refuse on Staten Island, which was only a short scout trip from Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx, and which was not as populous nor as economically productive as most of its neighbors. Refuse traveled from where many people lived and worked to where they did not, at least initially, making the landfill at Fresh Kills a justifiable destination for things no longer of value to people living in the swelling urban center of the metropolis. The landfill served as a primary disposal facility for Greater New York solid waste from 1948 to 2001. Its origins are linked to master builder Robert Moses and continued chronic battles over disposal that did not begin nor end with fresh kills. For Staten Islanders, the endless citywide creation of thousands of tons of garbage and trash each day was a curse, leaving its citizens to wonder why the dump abutting their homes and neighborhoods was a sacrifice zone in an era of relentless acquisitiveness beyond its borders. Fresh Kills reopened briefly in late 2001 through June 2002 to provide a receiving point for human remains and building rubble from the destroyed Twin Towers of the September 11th attack, and opened up again for Hurricane Sandy in 2012. What had been a notorious disposal site of unwanted trash now also became a cemetery for the remains of many people who lost their lives in the nation's worst terrorist tragedy. Today, the landfill is the heart of a mammoth reclamation project to construct an expansive parkland three times the size of Central Park. My book about fresh kills tells the intersecting histories of New York City, 
Staten Island and the challenges of waste management. The long timeline and attention to the landscape is crucial. Observers most often visualize Fresh Kill's landfill from the back end of its story, that is, from the gigantic mounds of smelly waste spreading all along Staten Island's North Shore, or more positively, as the raw material for a grand park. Such a vantage point gives a sense of inevitability to the state of the place. The pre- and post-history of the landfill, however, suggests otherwise. The land upon which it was built was a salt marsh utilized for many generations by Lenape Indians and European immigrants for growing salté and for hunting and fishing. About 100 years before the landfill began, the city placed a quarantine station and a supporting medical complex on Staten Island in an attempt to distance infected soldiers and others from New York's main population. During the notorious Quarantine War in the 1850s, locals burned down the quarantine station and adjacent buildings located on the island for fear of future yellow fever epidemics. The event was a precursor to other mainland incursions on the so-called Forgotten Borough. Prior to World War I, the Garbage War, as it was known, became a major controversy when the city cited an unwanted waste disposal plant on the very spot where Fresh Kills Landfill would be built several decades later. The backstory particularly highlights Staten Island's long period of alienation and foreshadows several secession attempts in later years, and the sense of its citizenry that their borough was regularly exploited by the core city and their homes were valued differently than those on Manhattan and elsewhere in greater New York. Over the years, much of New York City's marshland had been transformed into so-called useful or taxable land or various dumps and landfills. On Staten Island, marshland destruction led to an enormous waste site on a scale never experienced before. For those who despised it, Fresh Kills Landfill would always be the dump. For those who viewed it as a necessary evil, it was a sanitary landfill. There was nothing ordained about Fresh Kills as a disposal facility other than the city's will to build it. Why it became so, and how it evolved into something else, is at the heart of this book. Fresh Kills is as much symbol as sight. The space which the landfill occupies was transformed from an apparent marginal landscape of salt marsh into a wayscape and then into an echoscape or reimagined park space. The landscape is a tangible reminder of human habits and societal behaviors caught between material wants and valueless remnants. Stepping back from its truly remarkable history, artist Merle Latimer Eucles looked upon Fresh Kills as, quote, a social sculpture, a reflection of our material culture, our consumer practices, and our sense of value and worthlessness. Why should we care what a landfill, even a gigantic one like Fresh Kills, tells us about our history? Most obviously, consumption and waste are inextricably connected, but that relationship is much more complex and broadly significant than simple cause and effect. Consumption of goods rarely, if ever, results in nothing left over. Material goods generate residue, which must be reused in some form or disposed of in some way. Even in an era of great environmental consciousness, the lion's share of waste is discarded. In modern cities, in particular, 
The individuals who discard feel no further responsibility for their waste, are usually not the ones who decide how and where to dispose of it, and ultimately relinquish all ownership of it. Historically, the dilemma of consumption needs to be understood as a triangular relationship among consuming goods, creating waste, and disposal. Recently, efforts to break this bond call for reducing consumption, putting responsibility on manufacturers to create products that do not have one-time use only, encourage reuse and recycling, and more carefully monitor disposal. So far, the call for so-called zero waste remain aspirational. Recycling has helped reduce the throwaways. In 2015, 66.6% of paper was recovered, as was 61.3% of yard waste, 33.3% of steel, 26.4% of glass, 18.5% of aluminum, 16.3% of wood, and 9.1% of plastics. In 2015, the diversion rate for recyclables nationally was 34% compared to less than 10% in 1980. But recycling alone does not come close to handling all of our waste. Disposal solutions at the moment are imperfect at best. For New York City, as with most other cities, the chief aim of refuse disposal for much of its history was unburdening the streets alleyways, and vacant lands of piles of rubbish for the sake of mobility, safety, and health. The advent of the modern environmental movement shifted attention to resource recovery and recycling, but did not appreciably change disposal practices for what might not be reused. Today, New York City ships most of its refuse out of the state to other people's landfills and to other people's incinerators, although efforts to recycle and reuse materials have increased. The debate over what we throw away and what we waste goes on. In the case of Fresh Kills at least, the recovery value of constructing a park neither eliminated the memory of the landfill nor restored the marshland's ecological integrity. The specter of 9-11 continued to haunt it as well. Fresh Kills as a landfill was one particular use for that particular piece of Staten Island real estate, but it hardly seemed so at the time. The dump would always be the dump, but the site's meaning and value would not so much change as be modified by the powerful forces of history represented by the Twin Tower disaster and the building of Fresh Kills Park. The landfill was never really an isolated space hiding the discards of a great city. Its recognition grew out of its relationship, not simply with Staten Island, but with Greater New York and the surrounding area. Staten Island paid the price for the landfill's location, but eventually could reap the benefit of the promised Fresh Kills Park. The future of Fresh Kills still remains a little uncertain, but the possibility is always there for the landfill to reopen for reasons of proximity and economy. Even though the park is the main future objective of the space, some calamity at some time may possibly lead to a justification to reopen parts of the space for landfill use. Several years ago, John Byron Cooner, a sometimes Latin and English teacher at the Staten Island Academy, 
looked beyond the immediate utility of fresh kills to the larger question of consumption and relentless waste. Quote, its closure only means that another fresh kills is being ruined on some other Staten Island somewhere else in the country. I have heard many islanders bitter at the rest of the city for dumping its garbage on them, but I have heard a little guilt or sorrow that they are now dumping their garbage on someone else. The problem of our trash remains. Freshkills is an iconic structure for New York City. Maybe not in the same sense that the Statue of Liberty, the Brooklyn Bridge, or the Empire State Building are iconic, but nevertheless central to its modern history. An icon is something symbolic of something else, something more profound. Fresh Kills was at once a dramatic representation of the aftermath of consumption, a contested terrain between Staten Island and the remaining boroughs, a memorial to a tragic event, and a hopeful regeneration space. The sweeping story of Fresh Kills, its backstory and post-closure history, makes clear that we should not ignore the familiar, the disagreeable, or the unpleasant in making our past meaningful. The act of consuming in itself may be necessary and sometimes pleasurable, but it is not an isolated action without consequences. Fresh Kills is a monument to those consequences. Disposal has come to mean shipping refuse to someone else's backyard or finding ways to reuse and recycle what is reusable and what is recyclable. The World Trade Center attack and Hurricane Sandy demonstrated, however, that never saying never again is not a certainty. As a character in the noir story, Teen Wasteland comments, although Fresh Kills was only supposed to stay open for 20 years, quote, dumping is a hard habit to break. Fresh Kills Landfill, from the vantage point of landscape, was temporary, while the space itself was not. It has been a natural space, a private space, and a public space. Through its incarnations, salt marsh, landfill, graveyard, and park, its use and meaning changed. But it did not change without accumulating memories. In its current state, it is convenient to refer to it as Fresh Kills Park, but it still contains original, undeveloped marshland, recreational facilities, four mounds and landfill infrastructure, new public art, and a September 11th memorial. Fresh Kills has been made and remade over and over again, and no single feature or historical memory easily defines it, not even the gigantic landfill. If there was a historical preservation project to portray Fresh Kills without regard to time, there would be an intense debate over what to preserve and what merited significance. Instead, the moment dictates how New York City, more than Staten Island itself, chooses to fix Fresh Kills' current use and its current value. This means retaining what it can of the landscape's natural character, providing recreational amenities, and largely erasing the memory of the landfill. But in all of its eras, Fresh Kills, no less the landfill, is a massive human artifact, a collection of historical sites and an archive. Looking through the prism of Fresh Kills Landfill uncovers much about the history of Staten Island and New York. That history touches on the lives of key New York figures from Andrew Haswell Green and Robert Moses to Barry Commoner 
and Merle Latimer Ukuleles. It intertwines also the historical moments, city consolidation, world wars, fiscal crises, and natural and human-made disasters. Issues of consumption, waste, and place are at the heart of dilemmas faced by New York City for more than 150 years, and they echo the same dilemmas found in other eras, in other cities, and in other cultures. The potential for health and environmental risks from making and disposing of waste affects all societies, and it is never equitably apportioned. From a strictly statistical viewpoint, municipal refuse makes up only about 3% of all solid waste in the United States. This minuscule portion of the waste stream is important, especially in cities, where the functioning of daily life without collection and disposal of refuse can be calamitous and potentially dangerous. The sheer total amount of municipal solid waste in the United States has grown significantly over the years from about 88.1 million tons in 1960 to 262.4 million tons nationally in 2015, from 2.68 pounds per person to 4.48 pounds per person per day. For New York City alone, the amount was 14 million tons in 2011. In the end, there is nothing mundane or inherently exclusive about the history of fresh kills. It speaks to our daily lives, our ambitions, and our aspirations. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcast at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. 